there are challenging times in everyone's life, now more so than ever. When the balance tips, the things that make you a good lawyer can become harmful to your mental health. Host Julian Morrow chats with Rachel Clements, co-founder and director of Psychological Services at the Centre for Corporate Health and Resilia, about creating a healthy relationship with stress. They delve into the neuroscience and how it can help us manage our workloads, reduce risk, and how maintaining mental health fitness can prepare us for life's biggest challenges. Rachel Clements, thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me in. Well, it's a pleasure. Uh, Our subject today is mental fitness in law, and I'm pretty sure we're not talking about how to tell if a lawyer's competent to be tried for a crime. We're talking about something else. Rachel, what's your understanding of this term, mental fitness? Mental fitness really refers to our ability to stay on top of our mental health and our psychological well-being. We know that lawyers, one in three lawyers, will experience a mental health issue at any given point in their career. So the prevalence rates of mental health issues are actually exceptionally high within the legal profession. So learning some mental fitness skills is certainly going to be a competitive advantage to allowing lawyers to stay psychologically well throughout the duration of their career. Yeah, and it's certainly the case that the legal profession, I think, said to have the highest rates of depression, anxiety and addiction of all professions. So I'd like to hear from you why you think that is, both in terms of the nature of the work and also maybe the nature of the people who get involved in the work. But let's start with the nature of the work. What are the particular challenges of legal practice that lead to those pretty concerning stats? Yes, that's a good question. What we see with the legal profession is some really unique, what we call psychosocial risk factors emerging there within the profession. So we have very often very uh, high workloads, very reactive, fast-paced, deadline-driven work. A lot of lawyers' work is actually looking for problems. A lot of the time, managing risk, mitigating, building in contingency plans, you know, really thinking, often using their pessimistic thinking style. So a lot of it is quite solution-focused work, working, working with problems. A lot of their work actually does expose themselves to vicarious trauma as well. A lot of pro bono work or a lot of criminal work or family law work is very heavy on that emotional load work as well. Sometimes the work environments of lawyers can be quite competitive as opposed to collaborative as well. And oh, what I'm we shocked often that see... you say that. <laughs> and often in, uh, you know, in private practice law, they have the pressure of the billability, billable hours, running a highly su- successful practice group. Uh, clients can be requesting things at the last minute. So it's incredibly fast paced, incredibly reactive. And overall, it does take quite a toll on one's prefrontal cortex, our memory, one's concentration, our ability to produce an output of a very high quality by a particular time. And I've done some work also with litigators and they often say to me, I feel like when I'm in court and I'm litigating, my thought processes are completely visible to everybody and I feel like there's no room for error. Mm. So I think that's a really interesting point around actually even being feeling as if I've, I might be being judged or the way that I'm thinking or the way that I'm analysing things is so visible to, for other people to see. Well, I suppose the nature of the profession, particularly when you're in court, is that something's being judged, but it's something that obviously is taken on as a sort of psychological load. But I just want to yeah. go back to a term that you used Rachel, of vicarious trauma. Could you just explain that a little bit for us? 
Yeah, sure. Vicarious trauma is is often that role of where I'm hearing distressing stories, I'm interviewing witnesses, I'm reading a lot of highly distressing content, I might be watching and reviewing video evidence of distressing content as well. And it's hearing, it's the accumulation of hearing a lot of these psychologically distressing uh, stories or, or concepts that actually can take an incredible load on people to the extent that a lawyer could almost experience the same types of traumatic uh, traumatic reactions as the actual victim who's exposed to the mm. actual situation is exposed to the actual situation so it's certainly around being a witness it's hearing stories it's it's reviewing evidence it's reading lots of distressing documentation and what we see in real evidence of vicarious trauma is a worldview shift and change. I start to view my world a little differently. I might start to behave in ways to protect myself or to protect my safety because I know out there that my worldview has shifted and changed as a result of the work that I do. And that's where it can have an incredibly lasting effect on lawyers. So we do a lot of early intervention with lawyers around how do we actually protect lawyers against the impact of vicarious trauma and learn how to intervene early if vicarious trauma is starting to emerge. Well, so obviously that's not going to be something that all lawyers experience, but it is a significant part of the practice. So could you tell us maybe what some of those strategies are or particular requirements for trying to prevent vicarious trauma in lawyers? Certainly. One of the biggest things when we're looking at what prevents vicarious trauma, it's a lot to do with our quality of our workplace relationships. So when we look at what actually predicts our psychological well-being at work, the number one predictor that helps us to stay psychologically well is the quality of my relationship with, with, with myself and my immediate line manager or supervisor or partner. And we do a lot of work with leaders on accelerating their supportive leadership capability. If I feel as if I've got a great supportive leader, which actually predicts up to 60% of our psychological well-being is totally determined by the quality of my relationship with my immediate line manager or supervisor or partner. And secondly, my next biggest protective factor is the quality of my relationship with my peers or my colleagues. So with vicarious trauma, what we look at at is enhancing leader skills. We do a lot of work with leaders. If you have a team, if you're leading a team that may be at risk of vicarious trauma, let's look at enhancing some of those supportive leadership concepts. We talk a lot about creating psychologically safe teams when you've got roles that are exposed to vicarious trauma for leaders to get exceptionally good at recognizing what those early signs may be because in the legal profession, there is a lot of hiding and a lot of masking of mental health issues. How do I might read between the lines and be able to look a little bit deeper and how do I actually lean in and have those well-being conversations very honestly and very authentically so we can stop a little problem from becoming a big one. Mm. But of course those core problems of depression, anxiety and addiction, they're across the profession. They're they're Correct. all forms of work no matter what the subject matter of the work is. So I wonder if you could uh, explain for us a little bit more perhaps what might be associated with the nature of the people who get into law uh, that can lead to this correlation as well? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because what we often see in the legal profession, on the one hand, we have some of those unique psychosocial risk factors, but on the other hand, we do have the inherent uh, personality traits, personality of 
the actual lawyer and how they might be attracted to various elements of work or maybe it has been formed in some degree through their university education as well. And so you're talking often... about warmth, warmth, generosity, being generally great people, <laughs> those sorts of things. Yeah, some of those things. So what we often see in lawyers, highly perfectionistic, which makes me incredibly good at the legal profession because uh, I'm probably going to dot all my I's and cross all my T's. I'll be working with high levels of accuracy. We see an incredible achievement drive. I can set some amazingly high stretch goals and pretty much achieve them a lot of the time. I can be slightly pessimistic because that allows me to build in contingency plans, foresee risks, predict them before they might happen. I can be slightly sensitive to be able to build rapport and have a lot of empathy and build a relationship with my my clients. Uh, I can have a high need for control to be super planned and organized and not drop the ball in the middle of an important matter. Very intelligent to be able to process lots of very complex information very quickly and very conscientious to be able to work hard and to finish deadlines and to meet those client demands at any given time of the day or night. And what we see is that when when a lawyer stays on the well side of those personality styles or personality traits, we see a high-performing, high-achieving, outstanding lawyer. When I'm looking after myself and when my life is going along okay, but what we then see is that some of those personality characteristics can become a double-edged sword. Mm. If I enter the unwell side of those personality characteristics, maybe a demand has come up for me at work. Maybe something in my personal life has shifted and changed. And suddenly what makes me so high functioning and high performing and high achieving are the very same characteristics that can make me much more vulnerable to the experience of a mental health issue should a particular challenge or a hurdle or an obstacle come my way. And I have literally seen lawyers shift from the well side of those personality characteristics to the unwell side in 24 hours Mm. of a very big, stressful life event happening. You mentioned earlier that there is quite a lot of masking of stress and these sorts of issues in the legal industry. I wonder, is that associated with the fact that law tends to be very rationalistic, very sort of logic dominated, and maybe, you know, the lawyer's day job is not really about being engaged so much with the emotional, sensitive, self-aware and self-caring side of things? Yeah, I think that that's certainly a fair comment. The research on lawyers actually shows that they have very low levels of their own self-awareness because they have very high levels of self-awareness in my outer world. So I'm very client-driven. I'm very other-focused. I'm focused on my deadlines, my ability to achieve my targets, to achieve all the goals that I want to achieve. So lawyers have shown in the research to have a very busy outer world rather than our own self-awareness for our own self-management and our own mental health and well-being is actually incredibly low. So one of the first things I often do with lawyers is just teach them a little self-awareness technique and I get them to rate their well-being on a one to five scale every single day where five is feeling fantastic got a lot of fuel in the tank and ready to hit the ground running and one is feeling pretty overwhelmed and struggling and feeling as if I'm I'm pretty stressed out and teaching lawyers to just take a time in the day to focus on themselves to be able to give themselves a little rating a little number every day And in that moment, I can stop a little problem from becoming a big one. If I notice I'm starting to live like I'm sitting at a one or a two and that doesn't feel so great, what can I do in that moment to 
take some action that's going to shift me from a two to a three. Mm. And in that way, we can stop a little problem from becoming a big one. But that takes really high self-awareness because in the legal profession, we see three most common coping strategies when I when a lawyer maybe realises for the first time in their life that they're not tracking so well. The first thing that they might do is work harder, work longer, put my hand up for more work. I'll take more on as a means of compensating for the way that I might be feeling right now. The second coping strategies we see is I'm going to deny it and I'm going to avoid, avoid it and I'm going to not lean into it. I might block it out with some unhelpful coping strategies, usually alcohol or uh, maybe pharmaceutical drugs, recreational drugs. I'm going to block it out, pretend it's not happening to me and go to great lengths to, to keep it at bay. And the third coping strategy that we often see is I'm going to hide and mask it. I'm going to consciously cover it up so it's very difficult to spot. And those three coping strategies that we see in the legal profession time and time again exacerbate someone's mental health issue. So every single time I go to cope with my well-being, I make it a lot worse. So I always say in the legal profession, we can't delay any assistance and support. If we notice someone's not tracking so well, we need to get in there early because people can shift very quickly in the legal profession from the, uh, from the stress is helpful zone into the stress is harmful zone. Because every single time I go to cope with my well-being, I actually exacerbate it and make it worse. And the second thing is it's much more challenging to spot in the legal profession because those three coping strategies have the potential to push it under the radar to make it a little more challenging to spot. Mm. Uh, what are the hardest parts about coming forward, recognising, admitting to yourself and to others that you may not be coping? Yeah, I think that's going with some of those personality traits, if I'm highly perfectionistic, if I'm high, such a high achiever, if I'm highly, you know, very good at kind of usually working and performing exceptionally well, what I see in lawyers' mindsets when they start not to travel so well is that they have a lot of what I call self-stigmatizing beliefs. They say things like to themselves like, I feel ashamed, I feel embarrassed, I feel guilty, I feel like I'm letting myself down. I feel like I'm letting the team down. I feel humiliated. And those self-stigmatizing beliefs actually prevent people from reaching out for assistance and support. Because every single time I go to think about it, I get those very harsh beliefs, almost unforgiving beliefs about myself going through a period of time where I might not be tracking so well. So I always say with the work that we do a lot with law firms, we're always talking around getting good at spotting it, not leaving it all up to the individual who's not tracking so well to be able to put their hand up and to come forward. If we can get good at recognizing it early, if we can get good at responding to it, if we can get good at referring into some good assistance and support for somebody and very good at reconnecting and keeping someone on our radar we can absolutely assist and support someone through a challenging time and that's all it is it's usually just assisting and supporting somebody through a challenging time in their life it is usually not a permanent pervasive state that's going to impact somebody forever it's literally just assisting and supporting somebody through a specific point in time what sort of advice would you have for lawyers then who might have concerns for a colleague but feel unsure about how exactly to, you know, act on that, that very good and warm sentiment and might be a little bit worried about thinking, oh, I'll just, I'll just leave it, I don't want to make things awkward? 
That's exactly what we hear. That's exactly what we see about what prevents people from leaning into those are you okay type or well-being type conversations is very much around I don't want to I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to ruin a relationship. I don't want to be seen as crossing a line. I don't want to be seen as prying. And I always say that was our mindset, you know, 10 years ago. Our mindset nowadays is we actually all have a moral an ethical and legal responsibility to be respectfully curious. If I observe someone in my team is not themselves, and someone in my team is not bouncing back, there's no recovery, this has been going on for around three or four days now, and they're behaving very differently, it's very uncharacteristic, that is absolutely time to step into a wellbeing conversation. And it's very much just around, you know, coming at it very gently with lots of empathy, lots of concern. And it could be something as simple as, I've just noticed in the last couple of days, you don't seem to be quite yourself. I'm here to support you. Just want to check in. How are you tracking? How are you traveling? Or I noticed you've been working really hard lately. We've had a lot on. I just want to check in, see how you're going, see how you're traveling. And being able to lean into those conversations, that line, I have noticed a change in you. You're not quite yourself. That is the line that breaks through the hiding and the masking, the denying and the voiding, the working harder, the working longer. But I always say it's about taking time because very often if I am relying on these those three coping strategies, essentially what somebody is saying to me is I've seen through that mask. And that sometimes can just take me a moment. Sometimes it might take me the next day or a couple of days to actually think about that. So it's around, it's okay if somebody doesn't respond in the moment. Very often with lawyers, we often see about four attempts at an are you okay or a wellbeing conversation before somebody feels psychologically safe to open up. So it is absolutely okay if the person doesn't open up into that conversation on that first attempt. It can take We've got to be gently persevering. Mm. I always say it's about but gently persevering, but always what the other person walks away with, because given that lawyers are very have very active prefrontal cortexes, what they often take away is you're concerned about me, you've noticed I'm not not myself, and you care about me. So that is often the message that they take away. I have never seen a well-constructed well-being conversation or are you okay conversation ruin a relationship or, you know, cause somebody to be upset or angry I've only ever seen it strengthen relationships and in fact the most common response to an are you okay conversation in the legal profession is for someone to say I'm absolutely fine and you know they're not and I always say that is the hardest response you're going to get someone's not going to get angry with you they're not going to get upset with you they will tell you they're absolutely fine and you know they're not the most challenging thing is how do you then continue that part of the conversation? It's a really interesting phrase you used, a, a well-constructed are you okay conversation. And I wondered, is that conversation the same regardless of the workplace dynamic and maybe the power dynamic between the lawyers involved? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have to approach conversation differently if you're the boss, you're in charge for assessing work? And are there times where maybe you're not the right person to mm-hmm have that conversation? Absolutely. I think that that is definitely worth considering. Considering, I always think before you actually initiate an are you okay conversation, it is a good time to pause to think, 
am I the best person to have this conversation? And my definition of who is the best person is literally who's got the most emotional deposits in the emotional bank account with that person. Mm. If I'm observing it's my boss, maybe. If, if, it's, if I'm observing my boss is not tracking so well, am I the best person? Or maybe I could escalate that to another senior person who maybe has a great relationship with that person to have that conversation. On the other hand, I might be in a team where it's not so hierarchical hierarchical and we've actually got great relationships and I actually have a great relationship with the boss in fact sometimes the secretaries have the best relationships as well and they seem to know everyone they're always a glue that holds often holds people together and they're often the ones actually initiating are you okay conversations as well so I always think it's much more about the quality of the relationship I have with the person rather than the power imbalance but it is still worth thinking am I the best person to have this conversation and if you suggest that you're not you need to pass that responsibility on to somebody else who is. And does constructing a are you okay conversation well also need to take into account cultural differences and sort of differences of experience and background or are they more or less the same conversation? I think on the whole it's, it's definitely worth considering cultural backgrounds, absolutely, because we know in some cultures there might be a lot of shame or a lot of embarrassment even about talking about mental health issues or wellbeing issues. I always am very mindful of the language that I use with any, you know, in, in any kind of high performance culture. Um, and that's across the board, regardless of cultural issues. For example, I rarely would say the word, you know, help. I would re- rarely say, say the word even assistance. I would rarely say the word mental health. I will always come at it from more of a, you know, there might be a bit of a, let's say, what can we do to get your well-being back on track? Would you like to go and have a chat to somebody externally? You could go and maybe get some solutions from for a way forward, maybe get some skills to how you might be able to come through this challenging time, be able to get a little well-being action plan to keep you on track. So I talk a lot in terms of using language that is very uh, destigmatizing, regardless of culture, because I think that that works across the board. If I'm a high-performing, high-achieving individual and someone's saying, oh, would you like some help, like some assistance, I think that you might need a psychologist, that might generate a lot of those self-stigmatizing beliefs we spoke about. So the key is more around how do we have good wellbeing conversations without triggering those self-stigmatizing beliefs. I feel weak. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I feel guilty. We've got to navigate our way around these conversations using language that's going to inspire somebody to make it okay for somebody. It's not embarrassing for me to go and have a chat to somebody and get some skills about how I might come through this time or to maybe have a coaching session with somebody to get back on track. We all go through life's challenges. We all go through ebbs and flows of life. This is a point in time and we'll pass through that. So it's really using that, those terminology, the words around this is temporary. I use that a lot with lawyers. It's temporary. It's not permanent Mm. because that's often what people fear. Now let's talk then about how to maintain our own uh, mental fitness. And I was hoping at this point, Rachel, you'd be able to give us just like a miracle cure, one-stop shop that makes it easy. It's not going to be all those boring fundamentals like (laughs) exercise and sleep and breathing, is it? No, it is. I can sense it is, isn't it? Well, part of it is. Part yeah. of it is because actually it's, it's quite interesting. The research done on our prefrontal cortex and for a lawyer, their prefrontal cortex is one of their 
biggest tools, mm. their biggest resources to actually get their job done. So actually the research shows that because a lawyer is thinking so much, they're using their prefrontal cortex hard and fast all the time, such a, a load on the prefrontal cortex, that coming from a neuroscience perspective, after about 90 minutes of sprinting with your prefrontal cortex, that's reading a lot of material, taking it all in, committing things to memory, being able to churn out high quality outputs by a specific deadline. After about 90 minutes, our three most important neurotransmitters that are responsible for our prefrontal cortex high functioning and responsible for the stabilization of our well-being, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, start to run on empty after about 90 minutes. Mm. So if we were to be best practice about it from a neuroscience perspective, some of those strategies that you mentioned actually are very effective in topping up those neurotransmitters. So when I look at wellbeing work with lawyers, we're very much coming from a, from a neurotransmitter space. What are the things I can do to actually top up my neurotransmitters? Maybe I can get a whole day's supply of dopamine using one of those little wellbeing strategies. And I mean, obviously I, I was joking, exercise and sleep, very, very important. And uh, let's just imagine, imagine someone, I'm not naming names, I'm certainly not talking about myself, but imagine that you didn't have great uh, habits in that regard. Uh, what are the sort of first baby steps for trying to develop good habits? I think just, I always say it's about picking one thing. This is not about making well-being hard. It's not mm. about making well-being complex. One thing for you that's a not negotiable, one thing for you that you're going to be precious of, that one thing that you for you that you're going to guard your time with, no matter what comes through your day, what's your one thing that you're going to use to be able to stay on top of your well-being? Because there's a lot of research suggesting, and particularly lawyers, are a bit more prone to the downward spiral. Psychologically, <laughs> negative emotion is really bad for us, but psychologically, we're quite attracted to it. So this is around the research on the upward spiral shows that actually as humans, we are capable of generating the upward spiral. So that means, and I was speaking to a lawyer recently, I was doing some wellbeing work with him. And he said to me, if I don't go for that run, I, my one thing that's not negotiable is to go for a run every day. And it's not perfect every day. Some days it might be five minutes. Some days it might be 30. One day, some days it might be an hour. But he said, what I notice is if I don't go for that run during that, I'll come home and I'll have a lot of alcohol. And because I have a lot of alcohol, I then tend to eat badly. Because I'm eating badly, I then sleep badly. And therefore, my dopamine is not topped up. And then because I'm sleeping badly, I'm really grumpy the next day. Because I'm grumpy the next day, I don't have great relationships with my kids and my family. And then I don't have great relationships with my team either. So we're talking around, he said, I can go in that downward spiral and I can sit there for a couple of weeks in the downward spiral. And we talked around, well, what is it that would create the upward spiral? And he said, what's the one thing is that going for that run? And so he started to make it an everyday thing. Mm. And it, maybe it was for five minutes. Maybe it was for half an hour. Maybe it was for an hour. It didn't matter. But the upward spiral, because he went for that run, that meant he came home from work because he came home from work in a good move with lots of endorphins. He didn't have alcohol every night because he didn't have alcohol every night. He then slept a lot better because he slept a lot better. He was a nicer person because he was a nicer person. He started to get lots of uh, positive affirmation from his family and from his colleagues. And because he was getting that, he was better at his job. And, you know, it goes around. So there's a whole lot of research to show that as humans, we are biologically predisposed and lawyers are, we know from the research from lawyers, we 
are biologically predisposed to the downward spiral, but it's really bad for us. We can use our minds to create the upward spiral, but it's a lot more effortful and it's a lot more intentional and it's a lot more conscious. And it has to be because anything to do with positive well-being is not our body's natural psychology. So we actually always, it's always a bit of effort. It always is a bit of a chore. It is always something that I've got to put in my calendar or to ring a friend and, and go and do that or to grab my dog and go for a run or whatever it might be. But I think with lawyers, what I do a lot of work with them is around their thought processes because lawyers are prone to pessimistic thought processes. We know that it makes them exceptionally good at their jobs. I'm looking for problems. I'm looking for the worst case scenario. I'm looking for risk not so helpful if I'm a lawyer and I'm turning that pessimistic thinking style on when I'm coaching a junior (laughs) to always have that pessimistic thinking style oh why didn't you get that right or you made that error that was a bit hopeless what about when I get home from my from work and my partner tells me that they've got this brand new job and the first thing I say is what'd you take that job for that's going to be a lot of work that's not going to be great and when my child comes home and says I got nine out of ten on the math test and you say well why didn't you get a hundred percent having that pessimistic thinking style in your whole life is very unhelpful it is not good for our mental health it is not good for our well-being it's not good for our relationships but a lot of the research shows you can train lawyers to turn it on like a switch I'll turn it on on the tasks where that pessimistic thinking style is going to accelerate and lift my performance and I'm going to turn it off on tasks that don't require it when I'm having family time, when I'm coaching a junior, when I'm out doing business development, maybe I don't need that pessimistic thinking style. So I do a lot with lawyers around when challenges and hurdles and obstacles come our way, we have a moment to think about it. Am I going to choose to take that challenge response and learn and grow from this or choose to take that threat response? I can't handle this. This is terrible. This is overwhelming. How am I going to do this? And we have a moment to choose our response. So let's look at not always going down the pessimistic, catastrophizing, perfection, that very strong uh, neuro, I guess we've got a new little neuro pathway for Mm. that track. We can change it. It is effortful and is intentional. It is conscious, but it's more helpful for our well-being longer term. And I liked what you are saying before, that a lot of these traits can be really positive, but they all have their limits and their and their place. And I know you are a big fan of the concept of the performance zone. Uh, could you tell us what you mean by the performance zone mm. and why you find it a useful concept? Yeah, I, I liken the performance zone. I, it's based on the research from elite athletes. I mean, we're all might have been watching the Olympics over the last couple of weeks. And I think elite athletes are incredibly good at keeping themselves in their peak performance zone. There's a couple of learnings to take from elite athletes. The first is that their peak performance zone is often very short compared to a lawyer. If they're a, if they're a sprinter, it could be 10 seconds. If they're a Grand Slam tennis player, it's four or five hours. But a lawyer's performance zone is a lot longer than that. So, But elite athletes are, are very good at three well-being comp- Competencies. The first is that they do not take their psychological well-being for granted when they're in that performance zone. They are effortful, they are intentional, and they are conscious about doing something. They're using strategies all the time to keep their performance in a zone where their stress levels will lift and accelerate their performance. The second thing an elite athlete is incredibly good at doing is having very high self-awareness. When is my stress shifting from that stress is helpful zone, which lifts my performance, into the stress is harmful zone, which detracts from my performance? They have very, very high levels of self-awareness to read their body's early warning signs 
And the third thing an elite athlete is very good at doing is they prioritize their recovery after their peak performance event. They will spend hours in recovery. They might prioritize their sleep. They might stay hydrated. They might watch a video replay of their performance situation and learn and grow from it. So I think I, I often work with lawyers around viewing your day as a you're in your performance zone every 90 minutes. You basically got to do something to top yourself up to keep your neurotransmitters nice and healthy. And when you finish your day, whatever time that might be, you're entering into your recovery zone like an elite athlete. And when you are in your recovery zone, you are acting and thinking and behaving in a way that is consistent with recovery. So if you say to yourself, for example, right, I'm entering my recovery zone. I finished the day. I'm going to walk home from work today. And you spend your whole time on client calls on the way home. You've just eroded your recovery zone. Your recovery zone is like an elite athlete. They're precious about it. They're protective about it. And I work with many lawyers where their recovery zone literally might start at midnight when they're on big matters and big jobs. But it's around what am I doing to carve that out? Because otherwise we see it impacting on lawyers' sleep. Sleep disturbance is incredibly common in the legal profession. That fatigue is incredibly common. Exhaustion because lawyers try to push themselves. They're kind of on that treadmill a lot, not carving out recovery time, which means it's really hard to get into my performance zone the next day. So it's around really starting to divide your time, use your time wisely. When I'm in the performance zone, I'm switched on and I'm looking after my stress levels to keep my stress levels in a very good stress is helpful zone. And when I'm switched off, I'm actually doing something to psychologically switch off and enter into my recovery zone and allow myself to recover. Rachel, all the things we've been talking about sound pretty broadly applicable, but obviously we've been living in the last year since 2020 in extraordinary times and facing what are very novel challenges because of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Has the pandemic changed the sorts of mental health challenges that lawyers face, do you think, or are they just a sort of new location for these perennials that we've been discussing? I think it has changed. What we're seeing in the legal profession is higher prevalence rates of mental health issues within Mm. the legal profession. So before COVID-19, the prevalence rates were one in three lawyers will experience a mental health issue. Uh, It is definitely high. And particularly now we're seeing anxiety as a one of the as the most common the most common presenting issue now within the legal profession one of the biggest psychosocial risk factors i'm seeing now emerging as a result of covid-19 with the legal profession is the inability to switch off when i'm working remotely so we're doing a lot of lot of work with people to prevent burnout because people have actually a lot, of, a lot of last year i saw a lot of lawyers just use their primary coping strategy for their well-being was high perseverance and putting my foot on the accelerator and driving myself harder and faster than ever before. And what we saw was incredible levels of psychological burnout in the months of last September and October 2020. So we don't want to see that happening again now. We're seeing lawyers stop taking their leave because they say there's nowhere there's nowhere to go. So I'm not going to take any leave. I'll work harder. I'll work faster. I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand up for more work. I am not switching off. So whatever time I might finish work, I'm literally walking out of my study and into my other life. And that is not a switch off. And I've got sleep disturbance because the fear center of my brain is so highly activated at the moment that I can't sleep. Even when I'm resting, I've got sleep disturbance. So I'm not really getting my full dopamine replenishment at the end of the day. And people are often saying, I'm so busy. I don't have time to even to eat 
I'm eating my lunch at three or four o'clock. I don't have time to go and exercise. So I'm actually seeing people stopping doing all the things, all the well-being competencies that actually keep them psychologically well in these times. They're stopping doing those things. Well, just finally, Rachel, for the lawyers who are listening to this now, who are struggling and they're Statistically, there will be people like that. I certainly know that when I was practicing law, I had anxiety, I had depression as well. What advice would you give to those lawyers particularly, advice about what steps to take, how to start the journey to improving mental fitness? I think that one of the first pieces of advice I would give is we need to have a mindset shift around we need to start viewing our psychological well-being as a conscious competence. It is as important, if not the most important thing that you do every single day. It is as important as all other competencies that you would have in your day job. So start viewing it differently. It's not a nice to have, it's a need to have, particularly in a high-performance profession. So one is like having that mindset shift it is okay to invest in your psychological well-being. In fact, during pandemic times, plus being in a high-performance, uh, high-performing profession, it's it becomes a necessity. We've got to work at staying well, and just I would I would say staying connected with your peers and your colleagues right now is really important. Maybe finding ways to actually buddy up and talk about well-being. I'm doing a lot of that work with law with the legal profession at the moment in terms of we might run a little seminar that gives people the tools and the techniques and then we say right pick a buddy we want you to meet with that buddy once a week or once every two weeks talk about your well-being strategy give each other those little well-being nudges to maintain yourself go for a walking meeting and you know talk about these things as well so being able to pick a buddy that actually maintains that momentum with you so we don't fall into the trap of when lawyers get busy I just stop doing all the things that are actually good for me and of course that very much can lead us to go into that downward spiral. Well plenty of wise words there and good advice to follow lawyers like rules so take what Rachel said as rules and let's follow them shall we? Rachel Clements thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date. If you or someone you know is having trouble coping, having suicidal thoughts, or just needs to talk, contact the New South Wales Law Society's Solicitor Outreach Service, SOS, a dedicated and confidential counselling service for New South Wales solicitors on 1800 592 296. Or contact Lifeline 13 11 14.